the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir. Pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. Five after the hour of 5 p.m. here on Wednesday. It is the day after Election Day. Don't often get to say that here in mid-September. Lots to talk about on today's program. A little bit later on, Stephen Otterburn is going to join us with the advent of legalization of marijuana in states like, (laughs) growing list, right? Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington. Is it potentially problematic for your child? We'll talk about that. Steve Otterburn joins us a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to lead, though, with the big story of the day, the old adage, what a difference a day makes. Gavin Newsom, surviving the second attempt to recall a governor in California's history. Two-thirds of voters elected to keep the governor in office. Conservative radio talk show host Larry Elder took 44% of the vote among candidates running to replace Governor Newsom. Let's, let's be gracious. Let's be gracious in defeat. And by the way, we may have lost the, the battle, but we are going to win the war. And that may very well be telegraphing the suggestion that he plans to make a run for the governor's seat once again when the seat is officially up at the end of the term for Governor Newsom next year. With some insights as to what happened yesterday, and if there are any surprises at all in the results of the recall election, Ben Kaplan joins us. Ben is CEO of Top Government, a San Francisco-based political agency, and Top Data, a national polling and market research firm. Ben is a prize-winning Harvard-trained economist who previously served as a case writer at Harvard Business School, the NASDAQ stock market, and the National Bureau of Economic Research. In addition to uh, his insights and involvement with top data and top government, he's also a best-selling author of some dozen books, including the viral hit, How to Go to College for Almost for Free. And Ben, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. I, I made an observation. There was one of the the national uh, talk people who several days, maybe it was uh, last week, had made the comment that the only way that Gavin Newsom was going to win California was if the election was rigged, uh, which clearly, <laughs> I think, suggested to me that that uh, political pundit didn't know much about the makeup of the state of California. Any surprises in the outcome yesterday? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think, as we know, it's, it's a two-to-one margin of registered Democrats to Republicans. So it, it's an uphill climb, you know, for, for, for anyone on the right side of the aisle. I, I think one of the surprises um, that is not being covered a lot, but I, I think is notable, and, and we see this as like a mini-trend in California, is that Hispanic voters were more conservative than expected again. I mean, I think that was a trend that we started to see, and, 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 and even though... Obviously, you know, President Trump, uh, you know, trailed quite, quite a far ways behind in California in 2020. There was some, 
sort of overperformance in, in, in Hispanic voters. And I think, you know, according to exit polls, 58% of the Hispanic voters uh, voted to retain Newsom, but that was projected to be at least 10% higher. So I think, you know, one of the surprises, and it's a trend that just has to be watched in California, is essentially in, in, in some of the, you know, the counties away from the coastal area, there is a, slight, a, 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 a small but noticeable trend in more conservative voting from what is essentially, as, as you know, the state's potentially largest voting block. So that is notable. Um, but I think, you know, the, the big difference, and if you compare this to, you know, 2003, and obviously that's when Gray, you know, Gray Davis was recalled, Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected. Here, here's the big difference between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Larry Elder. Arnold at the time had 50% favorability ratings when he won in 2003. When it came through in the exit polling, Larry Elder was about 34% favorability. So very difficult in a state, uh, you know, that's two to one for Democrats to cross over and get some Democrat, you know, votes for, for in this recall election if you have a favorability rating of that low. And it was a big gap between what, what, what Governor Schwarzenegger was able to accomplish. Yeah, that certainly was going to be a, a very tall hill to climb, no doubt. And and while looking at the raw numbers of the results of last night elections suggest that there wasn't a lot of votes that were siphoned off of Larry Elder, uh, you know, you can still come easily up with another, you know, million and a half to almost two millions additional votes that could have gone to him were the field of contenders not so large. I want to come back to some uh, to the observation you made a moment ago, Ben, that I think is fascinating with regard to um, sort of the difference in, in expectations of how the Latino vote would come in uh, versus what actually happened. What's your sense? Is that because, to a degree, politicians don't understand that voting block, or are they simply not taking them seriously enough? Well, you know, it, it's a combination, I think, of two things. I mean, I think one is that any time, I mean, if you hear anyone talk about, you know, a voting block, and we, we, we all do, you tend to generalize, right? You tend to say, oh, you know, in this block, everyone thinks the same way. And, and that's, you know, clearly not the case. And clearly, if you're talking about, you know, the, the, the high 30 percentage of Californians who are Hispanic or Latino, not everyone looks at the things, at things the same way. And there's been, obviously, I mean, the, you know, vast majority have traditionally Democrat, but that's not necessarily the case because there's also a conservative social streak running through that as well. And so there's, there's counterbalancing factors and all that. So, so when, number one, when people start generalizing about a block and start talking about, you know, millions of people as if they were one person, you, you know there's going to be some, some, some deviations and, and issues with, with that. The second thing I think that is um, really noteworthy um, about, you know, what, how, what California sort of looks like is I think – any time in a state, and we've seen this in, in sort of states across the board, you know, both states that are kind of predominant Democrat states and predominant Republican states, but any time one party controls for a long time, and it's essentially a one-party state, and California has been like that, you know, for, you know, for a while, that it tends to people take for granted um, their supporters. And you kind of sort of say, yeah, they, they always support us. They always vote a certain way. And that's why you saw Governor Newsom really make a push at the end because some of the polling maybe one to two months out showed suddenly the Hispanic Latino vote was like 50-50 on this recall. You know, might it trend the other way? And so he had to like kind of rush around and his advisors rushed around to kind of shore up that vote. So I think one lesson is don't generalize and two, don't take for granted your supporters and when you start doing and there's a tendency to do that when you're the, the party that's in control and in power, then you know, people don't like being taken for granted. They want to be heard. And that's when you start seeing trends go the opposite direction. 
How much of this, too, do you think is a result of the, the, the trend line heading downward when it comes to COVID cases in the state of California? I mean, ostensibly, the initial hubbaloo over Gavin Newsom and the desire for a recall, amongst many issues, but, but perhaps chiefest amongst them, was this notion that um, he was a, a bit of a, you know, a heretical when it came to uh, don't do as I do, do as I say in relationship to COVID, things of this sort. And now we see, even in the news today, the seven-day positivity rate for COVID in California is at 3.5%, down by a half a percent compared to just a week ago. And we're one of the few states of the union that are actually seeing the numbers significantly uh, trend downwards as opposed to upward. Do you think that that change in direction in relationship to COVID uh, ultimately was a, a help to the governor? Well, it, it, it has to. I mean, I, I think what happened is of people who voted, you know, against the recall to keep Governor Newsom, I think the exit polls showed over 40 percent viewed the handling of the pandemic as their number one issue. And if you look at the number one issue of the people who voted to recall, you know, the governor and, and, and a lot of those people supported Larry Elder, their number one issue was the economy. So, you know, it mattered what you thought was the most important issue and and how the pandemic response is doing in California has a huge impact on that. I, I think if you're just going to summarize in one sentence, it's that Gavin Newsom lost and then won on COVID-19 handling. He initially lost because sort of the, you know, the kind of the infamous French Laundry Dinner, in which, you know, to your point, he sort of of did the opposite of what he was telling everyone else to do. He basically created this recall in the first place. There wouldn't have been this election without that singular moment that got a lot of people sort of upset and was already kind of a sense of, you know, I think Governor Newsom is, is, you know, uh, in many ways he's respected, but he's not a beloved governor, even, even by Democrats. So that gave a huge boost. But then, basically, voters who rank the pandemic as their biggest concern overall there was enough kind of fear raised by Democrats in, in, in this election saying, hey, you know, we're, you know, we don't want to reverse our pandemic policy because we're in a good state, you know, state compared to other states. And that actually that actually won out. That message ended up, you know, winning. And as you know, kind of interesting to see lots of national figures like former President Obama and President Joe Biden and others sort of come to campaign for, for Governor Newsom at the last minute. And interesting, right, to sort of see them. It wasn't even sort of for, you know, Newsom. It was like sort of against every other alternative. And, and that was actually, a, 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 turned out to be an effective strategy. And that leads me, Ben, to my final question. As you, I think, have so artfully pointed out, uh, one of the takeaways here for Democrats is don't take people for granted. Don't just assume that their vote is, quote-unquote, in the bag. You need to pay some attention to them. And and uh, that, that lesson perhaps has been learned. With regards to the takeaway for Republicans, what do you think that is? I mean, uh, certainly early on, the COVID situation, as you just pointed out, very much a moving target. Early in this entire recall campaign, before Larry Elder announced uh, that he put his hat in the ring, it was essentially... Essentially, we had the governor running against himself, meaning that that it was his own track record that he had to come out and defend. Once Larry Elder entered the race, did that, in a sense, become a little bit of a gift to Gavin Newsom, considering just how blue California is? Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Like, essentially, it gave him the ability to run against a single person. If on the 
sort of the replacement governor side, it had been a little bit more balanced and there was no one person to target, would have been much more difficult, much more of a referendum on Gavin Newsom. So I think the lesson for Republicans um, is, is a couple things. I mean, I think, one, it's that, you know, you have to remember the playing field you're on, right? And your strategy in Texas or Florida cannot be your strategy in California, right? There's a, it's, the, it's a totally different playing field. And so, a, you know, I think for 2022, what Republicans have to look at is, you know, they have to find a candidate that stays true to the values, true to the principles, you know, that, that, that reflects that. But you've got to also attract Democrats. Because why? The just the raw numbers. Two to one edge in Democratic voter registration in California. This isn't Texas. This isn't Florida. So they're, they're going to need to find a crossover candidate who can attract Democrats, but who can still be true to the values. Yeah, when we saw the numbers come in for San Francisco and that Gavin Newsom had handily retained his seat by 87 percent, that certainly, <laughs> I think, spoke volumes. Well, Ben, very fascinating. We appreciate the time and the insights. Again, there is Ben Kaplan, CEO of Top Government and Top Data, and um, just a, a great way to help us kind of understand what transpired behind the scenes yesterday and what lessons and what the takeaways are for us moving forward. Best-selling author Ben Kaplan. By the way, boy, check out his book. This is good for any parent. How to Go to College Almost for Free. I like that idea. You can get that available, no doubt, through Amazon.com and all the usual sources out there. Ben Kaplan, thanks so much for your time. 518, let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if you are near your radio weekdays at 1 p.m., you not only know, but you undoubtedly love my next guest. Why not? Most listeners do. He is the founder and chairman of New Life Ministries. He is the author of a number of best-selling books. And uh, by golly, one of the nicest, most down-to-earth people that I know. Privilege always to welcome to uh, KFAX Microphones, Stephen Otterburn. Stephen, how are you? Craig, I'm doing great. It's so great to talk to you again, and thanks for those nice, wonderful words. I will pass them along to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she's 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 trained you well. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're delighted to spend a few moments together because uh, speaking all of your outstanding books, you've got some new ones here, and uh, boy, some critical ones too. For parents these days that just struggle, and, you know, I think of the tough time that my parents had dealing with me as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s, and uh, my goodness, nothing compares to what parents are facing today, not only in terms of all of the influences out there, many of them not so good through social media, et cetera, et cetera, but then to live in states like Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, many others, where the use of drugs has become so normalized that some states are even now looking at um, legalizing the really nasty stuff, saying, you know, let's just let people have at it. And of course, you know, any parent that's had a child who has been dealing with either uh, occasional drug use or uh, alcohol abuse knows how disastrous this can be. But the big question, Stephen, becomes how do parents fight back? How do they gain any foothold in an argument with a 17-year-old that says, look, Ma, it's legal in California, so you got to get with the program? Well, you know, a lot of people compare, um, you know, marijuana and alcohol, and they say that, you know, alcohol is legal, so marijuana should be legal. And I like to talk about another thing that's legal, 
but it isn't very good for you. It's legal to smoke cigarettes if you're 18 and over. But I'd like anybody to make a case that this legal thing has any benefit to anybody. It's all bad news. It's all illness. It's all lung cancer. And, um, you know, it's just not a good thing. So you, you can't look at all the things that are legal and say, that's an endorsement for me. Plus, they're all illegal for a young child. So if, if you're working with your child at the age of six to prevent him from smoking pot, that's a really, really good time to start because you're starting to help them uh, find ways to say no to other friends and to things that aren't good for them, and you're giving them, hopefully, some inner strength. My, my daughter, um, uh, uh, she's 12, and a friend said, hey, this girl said some really bad things about you. And she said, well, that's not about me. That's about her. Hmm. Now, my, my wife is a really good mother, and so that's the kind of thing that these books produce in these kids. It's not just about marijuana or uh, attention deficit disorder and stuff. It's about how do you build the child's inner strength to say no. And there are, as you know, there are so many excuses for people and so many more reasons and stress and confusion and COVID and all that stuff and so much more stuff available to kids. And the Internet tells them everything they want to hear or everything that's unhealthy. And if a parent isn't really working hard at this, they're not going to succeed. So we've, we've written some books to help them. It's a whole series, but these are the first two, um, how to and love your pot smoking team is the first one. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that you bring that in perspective that just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, healthy. I mean, you know, a great case in point, as you were mentioning it, I thought, well, you know, eating bacon is not illegal, at least last time I checked. But if you suggest that you're going to sit down every day and have, I don't know, five pounds of bacon for breakfast every day, that's not illegal, but you're probably going to shorten your life quite considerably by engaging that in that behavior. And, and maybe that's part of the argument here. Do parents make the mistake of trying to sort of strong arm their children into towing the line, doing the right thing, do as I tell you to do, as opposed to acknowledging that they are, yes, our children, but they're really little miniature adults. And in the process of growing up, as you point out, they have not only the influence and access to information from friends, but also from the Internet. They may, in some cases, know more about the topic than we do. And so do you get farther, Stephen, by helping to educate a child and to see kind of the, the deeper questions behind it as opposed to just the simple, well, don't do it because it's not a good idea? Well, I think you get much more success out of the power of eyeball-to-eyeball connection and ears on your head that listen to the child rather than force, pressure, always lecture. So you, you really, if you haven't built that connection strong-arming them is actually going to push them even uh, far further away. So what we want parents to do is to be a securely attached parent to that child where they can be talking about things as they come up, that there aren't secret worlds out there of marijuana, sex, and other things 
that they are needing to hide because there is no deep connection. And it's, it is, it takes a lot of time to have that connection. But fact is, more kids are connected to websites and different apps and screens than they are to their parents. But it's, it's never too late. And, and one of the saddest things, Craig, you mentioned New Life Life. The other day, we had a situation, which we hear about all the time, where the mother is letting the 15-year-old smoke pot at home because she'd rather him do it at home than somewhere else. Well, as we got into that situation much deeper, this was actually a mother who didn't want to ever lose her son. Um, Men had deserted her. Her husband had left her, but she was determined to keep this kid dependent on her, and marijuana was one of the things that would lead to that. And there is a dependency factor here with marijuana. And on our, our program and our dealing with folks and parents, I don't know people, Craig, who say, ever since I started smoking pot, life is just coming together so much better, <laughs> uh, you know, because it really is a symptom. It's a symptom that something is not right. And what we see, not only can, is, is the decision-making instantly poor, the concentration, the memory, and things like that, but there really is a demotivation syndrome. And it used to exist in the 60s with very low levels of the chemical THC. The higher it is, the more that, that occurs. And a lot of people, they literally use, lose their motivation to be something, to do something. They're just there to escape. And that's, that, to me, you're missing out on a relationship with the God who created you. You're missing out on connecting with other people, and you're hurting your your developing brain that never gets over as a teen it's it's developing and you're hampering that development most important organ in your body you're destroying its ability to function well by using marijuana early and it seems as you suggest even in in the scenario of that one uh, mother who was trying to kind of be the cool mom as -hmm. to not drive the child away uh that 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 coolness really only demonstrates weakness and also perhaps another issue and you kind of alluded to this some parents may think back to their own experiences in high school and college and think well it's not that big of a deal and as you say if they're doing it around me at least i'm aware of what they're up to not recognizing the fact that the 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 marijuana that the grateful dead promoted you know 40 almost 50 years ago now not the same today And there really is an increased level of danger, not only that, but then to see children who, well, if they experimented with marijuana, that didn't feel so bad that, you know, I know some people poo-poo this notion of gateway drugs, but it seems to me logical that if a child has not not a negative experience in experimenting with, with something like marijuana, the likelihood for them to be more receptive when a friend comes along and says, do you want to try this pill? Do you want to you know, snort this line, whatever, that there's a greater degree of susceptibility to engaging in that behavior, all because the parent in the very beginning wanted to be cool. Yeah, and, and really, here's here's a kind of a, a headline for every parent. You should never raise your kids uh, in reaction to how you were raised or uh, what you did as a kid. You, every child is different, and we want to respond to the child's needs. So just the beginning of, well, 
when I did this, it wasn't so bad, so here's how I'm going to deal with them. It's a very poor place to start. You need to start with the child. Let me address something. Um, as Marijuana isn't necessarily a gateway drug, but what it is a gateway to is to escape and avoiding reality and altering your mood rather than face whatever the conflict is. And if we don't see smoking marijuana as a symptom of a problem in an adolescent where they're risking their lives, they're, um, it, it is illegal, they're risking being expelled, all these things that come with it, then you have to ask, what is at the source of this, that they need this or want this so badly? And oftentimes, uh, it's a it's a parent that's not there or a, or a healthy group that's not there. So if your child isn't involved in in church and youth stuff because you're not going to church, well, you know, start there. You, they need some healthy influence, and a great youth group at a great church is the beginning of something good in their life that might be missing that's causing them to seek the need or seek escape because they need to get out of their head. Steve Otterburn with New Life Live and, of course, the broadcast ministry here on KFAX weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. Steve's got two brand-new books out we're talking about this afternoon, um, Understanding and Loving Your Child Who Smokes Pot, and the other that we'll touch on when we come back after the break, Understanding and Loving Your Child with ADHD. I'm Craig Roberts. More of our discussion with Stephen Otterburn from New Life Live as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In our limited time tonight, I want to shift to another topic that is equally of concern and import to parents, and particularly as we see the rise in diagnoses of ADHD or attention deficit disorders, that that children struggle in a sort of traditional learning environment. And if the instructors are not astute enough to pick up on what's occurring early on, it, it can really create lifelong challenges for that child. Parents to understand what all this means and how to negotiate uh, the sometimes tricky waters of uh, attention deficit disorder. Well, a new book out by our guest tonight, Stephen Otterburn from New Life Ministries called Understanding and Loving Your Child with ADHD. How did the, the vision for this particular book get on your radar screen, Steve? Well, because I have it, and I struggled with it for years and didn't know I had it. I was highly disorganized, very impulsive. I never got uh, much better than a C in conduct. And teachers would say, your your uh, brain is working faster than your pencil, because I would just go on to, to something else. And when I found that somebody else had what I had, and I discovered this diagnosis, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we don't want to label anybody. But this is a label that is such a relief to find out this, I'm not strange, other people have this, and there's help for it. It really changed everything for me. And then I would just say, too, there is such an upside to this. If you can understand it and and use it, then there's a tremendous upside. If I was uh, with ADHD, if I had studied accounting and tried to be an accountant with numbers and details, you know, I would have failed miserably and and never ever uh, had any relief but i didn't do that i i did things i 
studied things where I could be free and impulsive and spontaneous and creative, and I made it work for me. And that's what we're trying to do with this book, so that you understand and you love them enough uh, not to over-medicate, which we know all about that, but also if there is a treatment that they need, that you don't withhold that because of some uh, somebody abused something, whatever. Just Just let your child be assessed and let the professional help you figure out what is the best combination of sleep, exercise, if you need medication, that, supplements, all this that would help a child function with this particular unique uh, set of characteristics. Is it challenging for a parent when you've got mixed children? In other words, two or three of the kids maybe in the family that have no attention deficit or hyperactivity uh, signs whatsoever. They just seem to be well-adjusted, normal, fine kids, getting along great. And then there's that one child, and suddenly now the parent is challenged with, well, I I don't want to single them out for special treatment as if somehow I'm ignoring the other kids. But we do have to recognize that they need attention, but they need attention maybe in a different way. Well, it's so true. I had a friend that had three uh, kids and he was they were amazing and he felt like he was an expert at parenting and then the fourth child had ADHD and nothing he did with the first three applied or worked and he was very frustrated and learned just how uh, not an expert he was again you have to be willing to take a look at this and and say this isn't just a child being angry or uh, being irresponsible or uh, a child that's trying to uh, play on me or something if you if they really you know a competent uh, psychologist can help you or um, a psychiatrist can help you assess this accurately I think more accurately than a school counselor if a school counselor says this is the problem then go get it checked out yourself and again in this day and age there are so many different variables that can be addressed there are different types of ADHD and when when you find the right combination, the child will bless you forever because you're helping them bring under control an unmanageable life. If, if they're just trying to figure out themselves like me, it is one miserable a place to be. And I can imagine, I mean, and, and for a child that is, as you suggest, acting out, they're angry, they're behavior issues, well, uh, that child undoubtedly frustrated by the challenges that his fellow classmates seem to get it when he or she doesn't. And, and, and other areas in relationship to either the learning disability aspect, the attention deficit, the hyperactivity end of things, parents just think that, well, this child just needs a good swift kick in the, in the, the seat of learning, as my father used to say. In reality, yeah. being able to hone in on what's going on for the child and that some of that behavior and that acting out is actually that child's own sense of frustration over a circumstance that he or she cannot articulate and does not understand. Well, there are, in most great school systems, there are special programs and uh, there are allowances made and changes made. For instance, you know, one of the most cruel things you might do for a child is force them to sit at a desk and sit still for an hour. And special programs allow that child maybe to sit on the floor or or, uh, go to the back of the room and, and walk every now and then get up. And then they're able to listen. I still, to this day, Craig, I can't pay attention to someone who's speaking unless I'm taking very, very 
a complete note, and that keeps me focused. I have to keep my hands moving for my brain to keep moving. There are all sorts of little tricks that can help the child, but if you're always putting them down, making them feel ashamed of this thing, versus this is the way God uh, allowed you to be created, and God is waiting uh, to take this, even the worst, most serious case, and use it for his good, but we've got to cooperate with God and do whatever it takes to help the child, not hurt the child with some kind of shaming or judgmental treatment of that child. Yeah, and the parent really needs to not only be be focused early on uh, to be sensitive to such matters, but then to understand that, you know, as you point out, Stephen, it, it doesn't make that child a bad child. This child that has a, a different way of learning or some challenges that can all be overcome with time, attention, patience, and care. The book is yep. called Understanding and Loving Your Child with ADHD. And for longtime KFAX listeners, who um, are fans of New Life Live, you probably just heard some news and went, wait, what? No, no. Steve is too smart, too articulate. There's no way he had those challenges. See, there's a living demonstration of the kind of hope that is available to your family and your child. So we invite you to check out these two new books. They're uh, very timely on topics that, unfortunately, a lot of parents are struggling with these days. Understanding and Loving Your Child with ADHD and Understanding and Loving Your Child Who Smokes Pot. It'll be released by Salem Books, same fine folks that own this radio station. Steve Otterburn, it's always great to visit with you. We appreciate the time, brother. Thank you, Craig. And anybody interested in what we're doing, 1-800-NEW-LIFE, we're doing a parenting seminar on October 2nd, and we'll be talking about all these kinds of things, oh. and we'd love to help any way possible. Good stuff. So you can check them out online, newlife.com. That's newlife.com or 1-800-NEW-LIFE. Our appreciation again to Stephen Otterburn, founder and chairman of New Life Ministries. Check them out weekdays at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. 5.47 on the clock, the latest now in traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Jerry Buckner, a radio show. If something tells me, the name sounds remotely familiar. I, I'm not sure <laughs> where I know him from. Dr. Buckner, host of Contending for the Faith, Saturdays at 7 p.m. here on KFAX, is going to be appearing at... Um, couple of events at Refuge Church in Concord, first of which will be on Friday, September the 24th. So you've got about uh, 10 days to plan for that. Um, he's going to be talking about biblical propositions supporting the Trinity. That'll be a special uh, workshop again Friday, September the 24th, 6.30 p.m. at Refuge Church in Concord. He'll follow up on Saturday with a uh, 10 a.m. to 12 noon talk on the essentials of the Christian faith, and then we'll be delivering the Sunday morning worship message uh, that Sunday, the 26th. Details available, area 415-721-1778, 415-721-1778. I was astonished to read the story, but then again, considering where it's coming from, maybe not so. Oregon is pushing back against Texas's restrictive new abortion law. According to the wire service, the Portland City Council has approved a resolution to spend $200,000 on programs in Texas that provide, quote-unquote, reproductive health care services. 
Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And I don't want to spend too much time on this topic, but when I saw this wire story, I thought, oh, I've got to ask Brian's opinion on this. I mean, I, I have to wonder what's going on in the minds of Portland City residents who knows that $200,000 of their tax money is being spent six states away. Yeah. It's uh, pretty stunning, and, and Craig, we've talked about it, but I think it is time to realize, for just the public at large to realize, that there's an ideology that has infected our culture. And people don't like to use the word Marxism, and even Marxists do not present themselves as Marxists. But progressivism that is based in Hegel actually takes on a Marxist form, and what few people realize, and it is stunning to say this, but Marxism requires unlimited abortion as part of its physical, excuse me, as part of its political mentality. It is in the Communist Manifesto, his very first work, and his final work, published posthumously, The Rise of the Family, Private Property in the State, Unlimited abortion is an essential element of the Marxist worldview. And that's why you see progressives, even if they haven't read Marx, they've accepted this notion that a woman to be truly free of a man's control. Again, remember what Marx talks about. Marx says that there's oppressors and oppressed. And according to Karl Marx, the very first oppressors were men, and the first oppressed class is women, so radical feminism, that is to say, embracing unlimited abortion, is actually a Marxist philosophy. It's extremely common right now. Most Marxists don't walk around saying, oh, I'm a Marxist. They will call themselves anything but that. Oh, I'm just a socialist. I'm just a progressive. I just believe in sharing and freedom and changing our form of government. That's what I believe. But if you read what Karl Marx wrote, it's an essential element in the new world he would like to see come to pass. And it has infiltrated our entire culture. It is an animating spirit in the progressive mentality. So in one sense, it's not surprising at all. And you hear comments from some of the you know, Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg saying, oh, I would just be proud to make sure that my grandchildren uh, are killed. That, that this, this nonsense that, that doesn't even... And yet the reason they say it is that's what frees a woman from the oppression of a man. It's an essential element. So it may sound absurd, but I'm not the one that said it. Karl Marx said it, and those who adhere to that philosophy, they believe it. Yeah, as I say, you know, I, I read the story and I did a double take and I thought, well, I, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised that the ideology is so strong, overwhelmingly so, that they find themselves compelled to sort of um, uh, enter into a debate over an issue multiple states away, not because they care about women in the state of Texas, although that's what they'll try to tell you, but because they are so hard-pressed to promote this agenda at any cost that they're even willing to take taxpayer dollars and 
and from a from a not just a given state, a given city, and spend it thousand miles away. It's it's truly amazing and should be a wake up call to the rest of us. Another important wake up call, and we've talked about this off and on. Back in 2016, of course, California became uh, yet another state to approve so-called physician-assisted death, suicide, murder, more accurately put, in some cases. And, of course, uh, since then, this law has faced many challenges and about potentially to face some changes. Give us an update. Yes, Senate Bill 380 removes the remaining safeguards in terms of the numbers of days required for you to wait. And also, there's no psychological testing. And that's probably the most alarming thing is that we know that a desire for suicide, I mean, we have suicide hotline. Our culture has recognized that when you say, hey, just kill me, I want to die, kill me, that that's in fact a cry for help. And yet, we're intentionally dismissing that. We know, and anybody that's been to a nursing home, if you have a debilitating illness, if you have a terminal diagnosis, you may not die tomorrow, you may not die in six months, but you're going to be very, very depressed. Well, there's no addressing that depression. It's basically saying, oh, we're going to give you what you want. So this is an amazing step. We are concerned now that that, uh, our governor, since he has retained his office by all appearances, that he's going to be quite inclined to want to sign this. So this is a very alarming uh, turn because we're embracing intentional medical killing for social reasons. Oh, well, people are so, well, just, well, too many hospital beds, we'll clear them. To, you know, people in nursing homes too expensive, eh, well, we can, we can fix this. So when killing, this is not letting someone die. This is using medicine as a lethal tool. A very important distinction, and people often get lost in emotions. No, this is not comforting them like Mother Teresa did. Mother Teresa helped people as they died, and that's what good good hospice does. This isn't that. This is killing them. <laughs> it tends to go right over people's heads. But I assure you, when it's practiced, it's very real and immediate. And uh, as, as Long John Silver says, Dead men tell no tales. And yep. a lot of times that what goes on. Kill them, they're gone, and very often they're heirs, as in the case of this governor. And you know, what ought to be disquieting for listeners is this notion that the same individual or group of individuals that are charged with the duty and responsibility of providing healing, comfort care, addressing a person when they're facing um, enormous physical uh, ailments, uh, the very individuals charged with providing that comfort also slip into a position of being the very individuals um, who take that life away. And it's it's almost the equivalent of the, the fireman who is also an arsonist. And boy, talk about a sense of being disquieting that the physician that's looking after you, that you're reliant upon to save your life, to heal you because you have family that you uh, uh, care about and, uh, you know, certainly want to go home to be with Jesus, but not today, as the old saying goes. Uh, you're looking to that physician uh, to provide that, that, that kind of support. And then 
imagine finding out, oh, yes, and also on the side, they engage in uh, so-called assisted suicide. Shocking stuff. Senate Bill 380 continuing to follow it very closely. You can get deeper insights every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on Life Matters. Brian Johnston takes a solid half hour to uh, unpack these and many more issues of concern to people of conscience people that are uh, advocates for uh, uh, the protection of, of life, particularly at its most fragile ends of the continuum. That's the, crave, uh, the, the cradle and the grave. So uh, be sure to check the program out again Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Life Matters, Brian Johnston, the host. And to get more information, you can log on to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. 601, let's get you updated on some traffic here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.